D.D. Holm was a famous medium. What were some of the different phenomena reported in his presence? Huge objects would rise into the air and sometimes carry people around the room. Materialized hands that ended at the wrist. We don't even have the technology for that today. To have hands that dissolve in one's grasp, but are also solid enough to carry objects around. What about um, skeptics who would say that these phenomenon are, you know, a priori impossible and it must have been all conjuring well, tricks? It, these people. It's easy to say, but it's hard to substantiate. I mean, if they say it's just a trick, I say, put up or shut up. Tell us what the trick and is. So let's get into um, your investigations of Kai Moog. Is that how you say his name? Mooga. Uh, right. Muga, the German, correct? I want to make it clear that I consider Kai the real deal. I think some of his phenomena are genuine. And so the frustration of the case is that we know he's cheated on occasion. You know, I mean, uh, things like a full body cavity search. I would object to that, too. So, I, right. Excuse me. In the history of mediumship, some mediums have permitted that. Eva so C. Let's turn our attention uh, in the last uh, 15 minutes here to the evidence for survival. Suppose. Um, a medium says, your Uncle Harry's in touch with me now, and he wants you to know that in his desk, in a secret compartment, there is a will that he never told anyone about, a second will. There actually is. A Hey, we're here today with the Emeritus Professor of Philosophy at the University of Maryland, who has investigated firsthand evidence for the paranormal and has written and lectured on topics in parapsychology. He's the author of numerous books, including The Goldleaf Lady and Other Parapsychological Investigations, Immortal Remains, The Evidence for Life After Death, and his latest, Dangerous Pursuits, Mediumship, Mind, and Music. How are you today, Professor Stephen Broad? Oh, I couldn't hear you that time. Sorry, I inadvertently pressed the mute button. The name is pronounced Browdy as in Howdy. Oh, oh, sorry, Browdy. Oh, believe me, it's been butchered for decades. Okay, well, um, how are you today? I'm doing fine, thanks. Oh, good. And should I call you Stephen or Steve? Uh, I answer to both. The only thing I don't accept is Stevie, which only my Auntie Rose could call me that. Oh, okay. shit face. Uh, only my mother could call me that. Okay, we won't mention those then. Uh, but you investigated a topic that I found very interesting when I was researching the paranormal, and that is physical mediumship. Now, we're not talking about the run of the mill, you know, the dead can speak through me or I can talk to the dead. We're talking about what I consider to be the pinnacle of all mediumship, which is physical mediumship, where it's said that the spirits through me can make objects in the room rise into the air, play instruments with nobody touching them, produce lights that are anomalous, uh, raps, knockings on the ceilings and walls, and materialized forms in the room. Um, if you could just tell us a little bit about the history of the famous mediums from the past and some of the phenomenon that were um, seen in their presence. Well, it began in the mid-19th century with the Fox sisters in uh, New York State. And very quickly, almost with the inevitability of economic law, uh, it spread like wildfire. And people started holding seances in their living rooms for an evening's entertainment. 
but also at that point, mediums started coming out of the woodwork and not all of them legit, of course. But the phenomena they would produce would be exactly the sort of thing you mentioned. And as you also mentioned, the usual way of looking at it, at least for a time, was that it was spirits operating through the mediums. The mediums weren't literally responsible for it themselves. They were just vehicles. That changed starting in the late, very late 19th century and early 20th century uh, when more secular uh, investigators got in on the job rather than uh, those who are already committed to the spiritist religion. Okay. And if you could tell us like D.D. Holm was a famous medium, what were some of the different phenomena reported in his presence? Oh, there were lots. Um, huge objects would rise into the air and sometimes carry people around the room. This included heavy wooden Victorian tables that would seat about 14 people. Uh, sometimes pianos would uh, move. Uh, again, carrying people around the room. And sometimes when they tried to stop the movement, they could not do so. Um, materialized hands that ended at the wrist that would carry objects around. People could shake hands with the hands. They could poke holes in the hand. And the holes would fill up and the hands would dissolve in their grasp. The hands were warm, fleshy, um, mobile, soft. So they were clearly not stuffed gloves, which Hume eventually tried to retrieve. Uh, we don't even have the technology for that today, to have hands that dissolve in one's grasp, but are also solid enough to carry objects around. Um, right. And I just want to ask, what about um, skeptics who would say that these phenomenon are, you know, a priori impossible, and it must have been all conjuring tricks? These people must have been gullible and just fell for D.D. Holmes tricks. Well, it it's easy to say, but it's hard to substantiate. I mean, if they say it's just a trick, I say, put up or shut up. Tell us what the trick is. Tell us how the trick could be performed under the conditions that prevailed. As you know, one of my favorite examples of Hume's mediumship is the accordion under the table test conducted by William Crooks. Got time for that? Uh, sure. Tell us about that. One of Hume's phenomena was to make musical instruments played untouched uh, or held in such a way so that performance would be impossible. And Hume did have an accordion that people reported sometimes floated around the room untouched by anybody or held by Hume at the end away from the keys. And it would play melodies on request. Now, Hume maintained that the phenomena were strongest under the seance table, which on its face looks a little suspicious, but William Crooks was a smart guy and he figured if this is what Hume sincerely believes, it's counterproductive to force him out of his comfort zone any more than necessary. So here's what he did. First of all, he bought a new accordion. So nobody could claim that the accordion was a, a prop of Hume's. Second, he went to Hume's apartment, watched him change clothes so he could make sure that Hume wasn't concealing some device on his body. Although I remind you, this was 1871. It's not clear what kind of miniaturized device could have been employed. Then he brought Hume to his house where he had built a cage out of wire and wood that just fit under his dining room table. <clears throat> and there was room for Hume to get his hand in 
under the tabletop and in the cage so he could hold the accordion at the end away from the keys, but not enough room to get in there and actually manipulate the keys or the accordion. So there were nine observers present, two, one on each side of Hume to make sure he wasn't taking his feet out of his boots, another one under the table uh, with a lamp. And under those conditions, the accordion was seen to flop around, move in and out. The keys were depressed. Sounds came out of the accordion. Then Crooks told Hume to remove his hand, put both hands on the seance table, and he ran an electric current through the cage. And even under those conditions, the observer under the table saw the accordion flopping around doing its thing. Now, I personally consider that to be one of the strongest pieces of evidence in the history of parapsychology. No skeptic has even tried to duplicate that under conditions even approximating those that Crooks uh, employed. So when James Randi used to say, I'll tell you how Hume did his trick, it's a stupid thing to say because there was more than one thing Hume did. Um, but he never showed how Hume did his trick. Right. And that's important to note that, you know, Crooks was a respectable uh, scientist. Um, he's, you know, very famous scientist in the history of science. And, you know, other respectable investigators and scientists also investigated mediums and found evidence for the legitimacy of their phenomena. Yes. And it continues to this day. Exactly. And so let's get into um, your investigations of Kai Moog. Is that how you say his name? Mooga. Uh, right. Muga, the German, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, you, how did you first get in contact with him? Oh, um, through a mutual friend who is a f f had the good judgment to be a fan of my books. Um, <laughs> he had been attending some of Kai's seances and was impressed, but uh, wary. And he eventually introduced me to Kai and Kai and I started to communicate over the internet. And eventually I wrangled an invitation to go to a seance there and I brought a videographer. And that was the first of several visits I made to Kai. Right. And, um, you know, I'm guessing there's not too many physical mediums around. Most people haven't been to a seance. If you could, if let's say I was a newbie and I was going to go to my first seance and I asked you, you know, Stephen, uh, you know, what should I expect? What are the proceedings like? How would you describe the overview of what happens at a seance? Well, it evolved over time as Kai became more involved in this himself. Originally, it was a group of people, the so-called Felix Circle, the Felix Experimental Group. And they were all in this together, but it looked like the main mover and shaker, the person with the psychic abilities was Kai. And at first they were concentrating just on table movements and eventually it moved into the production of ectoplasm. But that went along with another development that I think has both positive and negative aspects. Kai saw that people were beginning to treat him as a spiritist guru. He saw that this was probably a more reliable way of making a living than being a documentary filmmaker of the drug scene in Frankfurt. And I think Kai has been to some extent seduced by the fame and power he feels by being treated as a guru. And I think he has, in some cases, not wanted to disappoint paying customers and has resorted to tricks. Right. And he's still an active medium, correct? He's doing this for a living today. 
He is, but I, I frankly, I'm not sure how lockdowns in Germany have affected his, or throughout Europe, for that matter, have affected his mediumship. Um, I would think it makes a difference unless they're not caring about social distancing or other criteria. Um, but I, I want to make it clear that I consider Kai the real deal. I think some of his phenomena are genuine. And so the frustration of the case is that we know he's cheated on occasion. Uh, there's indisputable evidence and a lot of other suspicious uh, goings on. But the phenomena that I think are very clearly genuine are object movements at a distance from Kai while he's under forelimb control. And by forelimb control, I mean I, at least, or maybe more than I, would be draped all over him to make sure he couldn't move. And things were still occurring at a distance or behind me in the seance room where there was no access whatsoever. So at one point, while I was draped all over Kai in a darkened room, there were lights going and knocking sounds going on behind me. And there was nobody there. There wasn't even room for anybody to get behind me. Right. And, and we're going to get into that in just a second. But as far as like the proceedings of a seance, so if I was going to go there for the first time, you know, you walk in, you you sit down and pe- you're sitting in a circle, correct? Uh, yes. And then Usually. how does it start out? Uh, Kai has music playing um, more often than not Beatles. Mm-hmm. And he might say a prayer or some kind of invocation and then he goes into a a trance. Mm -hmm. And sometimes he does this in a cabinet, a curtained off area where you can't see what's going on. Um, But all those areas of the seance room were areas that I and, and my colleagues inspected very carefully before the seance. So uh, Kai would perhaps disappear into the cabinet and then come out ostensibly possessed by uh, the spirit of Hans Bender, a f- former and well-known German parapsychologist. And then the phenomena okay. would begin. Right. And um, what sorts of phenomenon did you experience um, with, with Kai? Like you said before, there were lights. There were lights. There were object movements at a distance from the medium. Uh, for example, trumpets would float, these paper rolled up trumpet shaped objects would float around the room or people would feel touches and pinches where it didn't seem like anybody should be. Now, I don't regard those as particularly uh, evidential because there was no way of being sure that somebody else in the room wasn't an accomplice. Um, but the accomplice hypothesis doesn't work for the phenomena that occurred behind me where there was no place for an accomplice to be uh, while I was draped all over Kai. Exactly. And so let's back up and talk about uh, before the seance in some of your more uh, evidential seances, what precautions were taken to make sure Kai could not produce the phenomena uh, fraudulently? The frustrating part was that it was never as thorough as I would like or th- that I'm capable of enforcing. I mean, I did a strip search of Kai uh, before the the physical phenomena. Uh, He stripped down to his underwear. I checked in his underpants, but I'm not qualified to do a full cavity search for some reason that was not part of my philosophical training. (laughs) Um, So there were certain things I couldn't completely rule out, but in some cases, 
I always, I always knew, in fact, that Kai would drink dark tea, iced tea, before going down to the seance room, and he kept some with him. Um, so if ectoplasm was coming out of his mouth, uh, you'd expect to see a stain. Or if he had eaten shortly before, as was sometimes the case, you'd expect to see food particles if he was regurgitating stuff that he had previously swallowed. Um, one hypothesis we can't rule out is the rectal hypothesis, which you might think is extreme, except there was a well-known Hungarian medium who actually did conceal uh, various things in his rectum. So right. I can't say that Kai didn't import some stuff uh, stashed in his butt uh, for the seance. And it's not that Kai doesn't know how to do that because he did some documentaries of the Frankfurt drug scene. So he knows about drug mules uh, putting stuff in their body. Right. So I guess let's go to ectoplasm since you brought that up. Now, this is like a, a material that comes out of the mouth of the medium during the seance. And it's referred to as sometimes uh, like cheesecloth. Um, and now, what was your experience of, of this? Uh, describe the ectoplasm and what it did. I'll just add, first of all, it doesn't always come out of the mouth. It's, for some mediums, it comes out of the nose, the ears, the vagina. Uh, it comes out of openings. Okay. Let's leave it at that. Um, I've seen stuff pulled out of Kai's mouth, which then falls into a lump on the floor, which then seems to breathe, move in and out. And uh, on some occasions, protrusions came out of it. In one case, a protrusion came out of it and formed a little hand that would go back and forth like this, like the head of a cobra. Um, I don't know if that's a magic trick. I couldn't, I was not allowed to touch the ectoplasm. Kai claimed totally unconvincingly that it would be painful to him to touch the ectoplasm, but it somehow wasn't painful for the ectoplasm to fall on the floor. So I don't know what the difference is. Um, mm -hmm. A later development after my last seances with Kai is that he claims the sitters have been able to touch the ectoplasm. I mean, it would have been very interesting to be able to get a sample, even just a couple cells, uh, but Kai was not permitting that. So one of the frustrations of dealing with Kai is that he would go up to a point in the terms of decent controls, but we couldn't get him to do the absolutely conclusive controls, such as sewing him into a one-piece jumpsuit or putting sealed boxing gloves on his hands so he couldn't extract things from his rectum. Yeah, and there's, I guess, a limit to where all mediums, how far they will go in being controlled. And, you know, I mean, things like a full body cavity search, I would object to that too. So, you know, you can kind of understand, but in the interest of science, it but should be done, right? Excuse me. In the history of mediumship, some mediums have permitted that. Eva C., uh, who produced veils outside, who produced ectoplasm outside the veil that covered her face. She would drink blueberry syrup before uh, the seance. They would give her an emetic, so she puked her guts out. So there would be no question of whether she had regurgitated stuff that she had previously swallowed. And they checked her vagina, they checked her rectum and so on. So she submitted to really heroic controls. Right. So they checked, you know, every orifice of her body to make sure she wasn't concealing any material up there. And I'm right. sure they checked her clothes and everything. And yes. so there's no way she could have brought some some other material that acted like ectoplasm. You know, it couldn't have been faked, basically. Right. 
So it seems, yes. So it seems, yes. Okay, and so before the seance, you did all that. And then let's talk about the table levitations because you thought that was pretty evidential, the way the table uh, rose into the air and how difficult it was to produce that by normal means. It's not so much that it was difficult to produce it, although sometimes it was very awkward to make the table, for one person, to make the table rise purely horizontally uh, from the ground and smoothly. And what was interesting about the table levitations is that I, we had plenty of time to test this. The table rising felt different when someone was pushing it up as opposed to when it was ostensibly levitating, because in the latter case, when it was apparently levitating, it felt weightless, it felt buoyant. And uh -huh. so there was a tactile and kinesthetic difference between the two. And we did, on some occasions, capture uh, table levitations in video under low light or infrared. I mean, I'll just add that Kai objects to infrared for the standard reason that he thinks it suppresses the phenomena. But he understands perfectly well when I told him that better to have moderate phenomena under good conditions than dramatic phenomena under poor conditions. Uh, so it's disingenuous of him to say it can't happen under uh, infrared because it has happened under infrared. Um, Right. And during the table levitations, where are everybody's hands? On the tabletop. Okay. And so in good cases, in the best videos, you can see all fingers on the tabletop. Um, but what really impressed me, apart from the fact that the table felt buoyant, in our, my last seances with Kai in 2015, um, the table would be aloft for about 20 seconds or more, and it would be swaying rhythmically to the rhythm of the music that was playing in the background. And we had good video in some of those cases of what was going on under the table, and uh, feet were stationary. Right, and you had your foot on Kai's foot, correct, or up against his leg? Well, somebody did, at least. Uh, yeah. It depends on how we were arranged for that sitting, but... Uh, we would usually try to control his hands and feet. Yes. Yeah. So you'd have to have, you'd have somebody, you know, uh, holding one hand and putting their foot on his foot on one right. side and somebody on the other side doing the same thing on the other side so that we knew what his hands were doing and his feet were doing at the time it happened. Right. So I would say that the phenomena that I found most compelling were the table levitations um, and uh, object movements at a distance apart from uh, are under four-limb control. I mean, there were times in the 2015 seances when um, Kai and his wife, Julia, were controlled and a bell rang from the ceiling behind me. Uh, there was nobody at that part of the room. Or when uh, a drum well behind Kai and out of his reach made a loud banging sound and then fell over. Right. And that was one of the interesting ones to me. Um, you talked about that drum that was you heard like this loud whack on the drum right and then when you tried to reproduce it afterwards or somebody tried to reproduce it whack the drum it it made it fall off the chair but that wasn't the case during the seance right correct that's right i misspoke yes it stayed where it was during uh uh kai's production of the sound but when we tried to duplicate it first of all the the bang wasn't anything like what we heard and 
Secondly, it knocked over the drum. Uh, there was something similar where a, a huge banging sound came out of the table that we were sitting around. And it was a plastic table. It doesn't make that kind of sound. <laughs> so uh, it scared everybody. Indeed. Uh, so let's talk about uh, Kai and cheating. Uh, first of all, with the ectoplasm, Kai bought some Halloween cobweb. Um, and, you know, how does that resemble ectoplasm? And what was Kai doing with, you know, Halloween cobweb? Well, some of it was glowing green, which looked like the glowing green ectoplasm he managed to produce in this well-secured Austrian farmhouse where we were holding some seances. Um, I know he didn't bring it into the room outside his body. It wasn't in the room before the seance. Uh, so that's why the regurgitation and the rectal hypotheses uh, remain live options. Uh, Kai had a number of flimsy excuses for why he bought it in the first place. He said uh, he wanted to determine just how similar it was to uh, what he produces. But you don't need as much cobweb as he bought to make that determination, he could have gotten, uh, he got a ton of cobweb. Okay. Yeah. But you know, an interesting thing you, you brought up was that he could have pulled it out of his rectum, you know, a place you didn't check, but then at one time you actually had the ectoplasm close to your face, close enough to where you could have smelled it if yes. it had been in his rectum, correct? Well, it could have been in a condom, I suppose, but oh, yeah. where did, where did all that go? I mean, uh, unless he stuffed it back in one of his orifices and then went back up to the room. Um, so we don't know. There are mysteries about that. And none of these mysteries would have to be uh, active mysteries if Kai had only agreed to more convincing controls in the first place. So he was a frustrating person to deal with. And I mean, I happen to like Kai personally. He's a very interesting, smart guy. Um, but the question but is problematical. Yeah. And, and one, one question is, even if it was Halloween cobweb, could he have made it, you know, like look like it was moving and breathing and moving at different points? Um, could he have done that uh, by some sort of magic trick and pulling a hand up from it? There may be a trick that I hadn't yet come across, but I mean, he clearly did some study to find out how to make this light move that he controlled with his thumb. We have convincing photographs of that happening. Um, so it would be very unlikely if he discovered only that one trick and no others. Right. And that's the D-light flight. Yes. Um, and uh, how do we know he used that in some seances? Well, for reasons that today remain mysterious, he uh, licensed the dissemination of a sequence of photographs showing the light moving in exactly... Um, the direction that his thumb was moving. And mm -hmm. then uh, the one of his regular sitters, Sky Jochen, a doctor, um, found the device in his travel, in Kai's travel bag. Right. And so that brings up, you know, if Kai has some genuine phenomenon, like which you witnessed yourself, some things, you know, could not have been trickery. Why would he resort to using tricks sometimes in seances? Why do you think? Well, in part, I think he doesn't want to disappoint paying customers. When I confronted him about such things, 
encouraging him to admit that he cheated on at least uh, the delight flight case, he said, uh, I can't admit that I cheated, which is not the same thing as saying I didn't cheat. Right. But yeah, he's got paying customers and he makes a living doing this. So, right. you know, you talk about it's a lot of times with mediums, there are negative seances where nothing happens, right? Yes. Uh, D.D. Hume lost his powers for an entire year when he converted to Catholicism temporarily. Uh, <laughs> I wonder what happened there, but <laughs> I'm not sure. But yeah, so in order to make sure he doesn't have a negative seance for paying customers, he might use a few tricks here and there, right? It makes sense to me, um, but it detracts from his reliability as a subject. And I tried to stress to Kai that he had a chance here to allow us to document in unprecedented detail the kinds of phenomena that had only been reported but never really carefully videoed. If only he'd just chill and uh, relax and let, let the stuff happen, not worry about producing the grandest phenomena that he could produce. Right. And these seances, they take place mostly in the dark, correct? With some red light here and there? Uh, yes. And again, totally unnecessary. I know a lot of mediums uh, maintain that uh, light inhibits the phenomena. But the fact is, the very best mediums didn't have to work in the dark. Dede Hume worked in well-lit rooms. Um, Eusapia Palladino worked under bright electric light in the Naples seances. Um, so it's not unprecedented for mediums to get very good results under decent lighting. Right. And you talk about how the um, powers of mediums kind of declined over time. So that the phenomenon that were really impressive with D.D. Hume, we see less phenomena with Eusapia Palladino. And over time, it seems like gradually it became less fantastic. No more materialized hands at the wrist, you know, maybe some table movements, some lights and knockings. But uh, the phenomenon as a whole seemed to decline in spectacularness, I guess. And I, I think the reason for that has to do with several things. First of all, PK phenomena are just scary in principle. And they're scary because if I can move a compass needle or a cigarette a, a millimeter by thought alone, it's a very small step from doing that to making somebody drop dead by thought alone. So the existence of any PK at all forces us to take seriously a kind of magical worldview that most of us associate, usually condescendingly, only with so-called undeveloped or primitive cultures. And it's a worldview where we might have to accept responsibility for a range of things that we'd just as soon be bystanders for. I mean, in industrialized countries, very few people are comfortable with the idea that if you have uh, a nasty thought about someone and that person suffers uh, a health crisis or other disaster, that you might have had something to do with that. There are parts of the world where that's taken for granted, but uh, lots of parts of the world, that's taboo. So that's part of the puzzle. The other thing is that it's important to remember that mediums in general have not felt themselves as responsible for the phenomena. As I said earlier, they consider themselves vehicles. So psychologically, that takes them off the hook no matter what happens. If they get only modest or no phenomena, they can attribute the failures to uh, inept communicators or weak links with the spirit world. And maybe even more important, if good phenomena happen, the mediums don't have to worry about the extent of their powers. They don't have to think, 
holy crap, if I can produce these phenomena under the safe confines of a seance, who knows what havoc I might be wreaking when the seance is over. So one of the things that started to happen in the late 19th century is that more and more scientists, secular scientists, started getting in on investigations. And their view was that the mediums were actually producing the phenomena psychokinetically. And even if the mediums didn't accept that, it was an idea that was in the air. It, was, it changed the psychodynamics of mediumship profoundly. And so over time, as more and more non-spiritists got in on these investigations and the idea that the mediums might be producing this caught, caught on, uh, the phenomena started to dwindle in magnitude. Now, how convenient is that psychologically? I mean, by the time you get to the mid-20th century, you've got subjects like Felicia per Paris and Nina Kulagana, who produced very small object movements, but they had a sweat and strain to produce the phenomena. They thought it was coming from them. And, and, the, and does Kai seem to strain? I know you mentioned uh, before the phenomenon, like slightly before he, he starts twitching or something like that. Sometimes he would, he would do that. Uh, that's when I was controlling all four limbs. Uh, there would be a twitching or a pushing. And then 15 feet away from him, things would happen. So even if he had an accomplice there, the accomplice wouldn't feel the movement that I felt holding on to his limbs. So how would the accomplice know what the right time was to produce the object movements at a distance? Exactly. And you um, start your book in, the, I believe, in the first part of your book, you talk about a table up game you played with your friends. Um, can you describe that game and how it scared you so badly? That was my uh, initiation. Uh, I was in graduate school working on a PhD in philosophy, writing a dissertation on temporal logic. I knew nothing about parapsychology. And it was a slow day in Northampton, Massachusetts, and a couple of friends came over. We'd seen the only movie in town. And so they said, well, let's play this game called Table Up. They didn't know anything about parapsychology either. But they had played this game several times before, they said, and when it worked, it was fun. So this was in broad daylight in my house, um, my table. And for three hours, we watched the table tilt up and down and spell out answers in response to questions. And I had no idea what was going on. This was all new to me. And so the uh, idea I think was... I had, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The idea was you put your hands on the table and you think in your mind, table up. You kind of will exactly. the table to go up. And then yes. after 20 minutes, you started to get an, an actual response. Yes. It took a while, but apparently the table got into the swing of things and uh, uh, started to rise under our fingers. And what impressed me particularly is that even if we were standing at the table and one friend went into another room, um, the table would continue to rise under our fingers. So it was clear that we weren't using our legs or knees to, to move the table. So it was very impressive. It went on for three hours. Uh, I had plenty of opportunities to examine the phenomena while they were occurring. But I had no place to categorize what was going on, and I didn't want to jeopardize my PhD. So I, I literally put it out of mind until I... Uh, finished my degree, got a job, and got tenure. I may and be crazy, but I'm not stupid. 
Right. And, you know, I think you mentioned in your book how um, you're you're glad that you didn't show this paranormal parapsychological interest early on in your philosophical career. Why is it, I guess, maybe dangerous for young graduate students to uh, really show an interest in, in this area? Because there's great prejudice against it in the academy. And um, it's all too easy to assume that young philosophers or young academics who tackle the paranormal before getting tenure are doing it because it's relatively easy. They're, they're skating by. But I, so I think it's more important to first demonstrate some competence in your chosen profession so that people can take you seriously. I mean, I remember one logician, one famous logician saying to me, uh, well, if somebody has to do this, I'm glad it's you. Now, mm -hmm. I know there are several ways of interpreting that, but I think she meant it as a compliment. Okay, so yeah, back to the fear of Psy. So you think we're afraid of it because of its implications. If I could make an object rise into the air, you know, if my mind is capable of that, then maybe I'm capable of causing a car to veer in the wrong direction and get into a wreck, something like or that, right? Cause a heart attack or a brain aneurysm or whatever, anything. Yeah. Exactly. And so why do you think the laboratory evidence for PK is is such a small effect? I mean, the one the experiments I know about are like random number generators where you try to influence a machine to produce more ones than zeros. And you have to look at it statistically over millions of trials. There are more ones than zeros than we would be expected by chance, but it's never like a huge effect. It's never like 90% ones versus zeros. You know, it's always like a small effect over millions of trials. Statistically, some experiments have been pretty impressive, but they're the exception. And uh, none of them have been particularly convincing to skeptics. Um, it's all too easy to say we just fail to understand some aspect of the laws of probability. Mm -hmm. um, I had something I wanted to say, but it just faded in the senior moment. Okay. Well, uh, what about large scale PK experiments in the lab? Have they been done? Like have, you know, a matchstick under a glass case and control for vibrations and anything else that could move it and maybe have a subject there trying to will it to move with their mind. Has there been anything like that? Yes. Recently, we studied, uh, or I and some friends in uh, Buenos Aires, studied a subject named, well, I'll keep his name out of this for the moment. Well, no, he's, he, he's well known. Ariel Farias, his name is. Uh, he's a regular guy, martial arts expert, uh, has a regular job. He's a family man. He's not a professional psychic. Um, we filmed him making tables rise under his fingers uh, while he was seated on a scale, while video cameras were stationed all around him, behind him, above him, below him, um, in bright light and under various sorts of other conditions. So there is good video evidence of some of these phenomena, but um, one of the problems with bringing these phenomena into the lab is that 
we have no idea what it is we're trying to study under laboratory conditions. You know, there are lots of things that human beings can do, which you just can't study under laboratory conditions. If you want to study a tennis player's ability to return serves, you have to see how the player performs during an actual match when opponents are trying their hardest to win. Um, you don't expect to really study human sensuality or courage or empathy under laboratory conditions. And so until we have some idea what psychic phenomena are doing out in the world, what its natural history might be, we have no idea whether it's even appropriate to study them under laboratory conditions. So in that respect, laboratory studies of psi generally, although I understand the motivation for doing it, it's just premature. Uh-huh. And as far as your research that you mentioned there, uh, has that been published in a journal? The Journal of Scientific Exploration published two papers on Ariel. Um, I don't have the references right off the top of my head. Okay, very good. Uh, let's go to a term that you don't like too much, which is super psi. Uh, mm. So there's puny psi. So let's say if you can influence a random number generator, you know, that's puny psi. If you can move a matchstick on a table a couple of millimeters, that's, you know, it's getting better. That's dandy dandy psi, or if you can levitate a heavy, large object, I would call that super psi. That's um, super psychic ability. Um, but you don't like the term super psi. Why not? Well, the term super is just tragically unclear. I mean, what's super for one person may not be particularly super for another person. It's not as if we have a standardized measure of amazingness. Um, and it's not clear that there's any justification for supposing, for example, that the materialization of uh, an entire human body is more amazing than the materialization of a hand that ends at the wrist or even of a single finger. I mean, on what criterion is one materialization more amazing than another? I mean, we all have our boggle thresholds, and there are certain cases that test our boggle thresholds more than others. But... What bothers me about super psi, apart from the normativity of it and the unclarity of it, is that people seem to assume that the term super and super psi is similar to the use of the term super and superhero rather than in super glue. I mean, we understand what we mean by super glue. It's just damn fine glue. But uh, super and superhero, we almost assume that we're talking about something that's antecedently incredible. And I think people are using the term prejudicially right from the start. And I think it's better to avoid the term altogether. And in the case of the evidence for survival, we do have an alternative that's living agent psi. Exactly. So let's turn our attention uh, in the last uh, 15 minutes here to the evidence for survival. I was wondering if you could give us a real life example of a mediumistic communication, which some purport to be evidence for survival. And if you could just sketch the case with the pertinent details. Well, let's take a real simple one because it illustrates at least the crucial features. Suppose um, a medium says, your Uncle Harry's in touch with me now and he wants you to know that in his desk in a secret compartment, there is a will that he never told anyone about, a second will. There actually is a case a lot like this. And suppose that nobody living knew normally, at least, about the existence of uh, the secret compartment or the second will. And they find it, and it turns out that uh, the communication ostensibly from Uncle Harry was spot on. 
So on the surface, that looks like Uncle Harry was conveying some verifiable information. The problem is that if it's verifiable, uh, it was available all along to uh, uh, ESP among the living. Right. So maybe by clairvoyance, the medium could have seen the will. Right. Or one of the sitters. I mean, it's not clear where the causal lines are in a mediumistic scenario. Right. And so even with complex uh, mediumistic communications, like I reported one in, a, in the last video about a communicator that came through that claimed to be, uh, you know, flying officer William Alfred Scott in World War II. And he gave detailed information about his bomber squadron and, uh, you know, about what what happened in the war. And uh, Joe Fisher, who investigated, went and got the war records and found out a lot of what he said was true. And, you know, sir. A survivalist would argue that, you know, this must be an actual deceased communicator because for the medium to have clairvoyantly accessed all these disparate, you know, pieces of evidence, you know, war records and telepathy with people who who knew him, uh, you know, they'd have to get information psychically from so many different sources that that's that's just too super to be real. Well, the thing is, the only sense of we can attach the notion of obscure information has to do with normal ways of accessing information. We know what it means to say that information is obscure if it's uh, at a great distance or behind electronic shields or something of that sort. But what's normally obscure may not be psychically obscure. And we know that from ordinary tests of ESP. So when subjects uh, correctly identify cards in a sealed deck or identify a target in a sealed opaque envelope, there's no uh, location from which that could ordinarily be observed. And that shows that what's psychically available may not be normally available perceptually. So we already know that. So it's not as if we have a clear concept of what's reasonable to expect in terms of uh, psychic functioning. And that, again, has to do with the poverty of our understanding of the natural history of Psy in real life, which is one of the reasons. Did we just lose something? Oh, wait a minute. Uh, maybe my camera. Hold on. Let me see here. Cute cat. <laughs> okay, I think I'm back here. I see you. Okay, so let's uh, do that point again. Where were we here? I was so shocked by the cat that I'm not sure <laughs> I remember. Oh, yeah. So we were talking about Super Psy and, um, you know, being able to get information psychically from multiple sources. Yeah, I mean, we have no idea just how easy or how difficult that is. So until we have a more robust idea of uh, what Psy is doing in life, uh, we have to be very circumspect about what we're assuming is credible or possible or plausible in the case of uh, mediumistic communication or ordinary living human communication. Right. And to me, it could be something like lifting a finger, like something that we do by intention, but we're not involved in the minute details. Like I lift my finger, but I'm in no way involved in the process of figuring out which brain cells to fire, which nerve pathways to go down. 
that's all some, you know, subconscious intelligence doing that. It could be the same as far as mediums, you know, the, you can't really say it. Oh, well, it'd be too hard. How would you do that? You'd have to get information from this book, information from this person, but it could just be something like that where I have the intention to, to do this. And then some deeper intelligence takes care of the details. Well, we know that from other kinds of uh, experiments. There were some very interesting biofeedback experiments that I think were done in the 60s, um, where subjects were told, were taught through biofeedback to fire single muscle cells in the arm, but none of the surrounding cells. Now, they did that successfully based on biofeedback, but they didn't have a clue how they were pulling that off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, so do you think living agent Psy can explain any case of ostensible communi mediumship communications? I think there are, in principle, cases that would tilt the scales in favor of survival convincingly, but they'd be close to what I've described as ideal cases in my book, Immortal Remains. And none of the actual cases approximates uh, the ideal cases. They all have issues of one sort or another. But I would say that if a case came close to the ideal, there, it would be irrational in some important sense to deny that uh, we have evidence of postmortem survival. And so if you could, could you sketch like what an ideal case would be? Oh, my God. You'd have to go into great detail. I mean, there are a number of criteria that need to be satisfied. So you could rule out dissociation. You could, uh, subjects would have to... Um, the medium or whomever would have or the subject in a reincarnation case would need to provide gobs and gobs of re very remote, specific, detailed information. Ideally, that was culturally remote from the medium, maybe speaking in languages that the person had no opportunity to learn. And you can just pile on one thing after another. I will say there are some cases that still impress me, nevertheless. And one of them is uh, Mrs. Piper's 25-year mediumship. And one of the reasons that impresses me is that it went on for so long, so consistently providing decent information, detailed decent information. I think the more we study Psy, we realize that it's not that easily controllable. It's uh, very vulnerable to uh, situational conditions. And it's more like a hitter in baseball who's good if he gets one out of three hits. Right. And uh, what do you think about apparitions? Um, so if multiple people see a ghost, for instance, they they'd see the ghost at different times. They describe the ghost in a in the same way. So give a, the same description of the ghost and they had no contact with each other. They didn't. One didn't tell the other. I saw a ghost. How would you describe um, seeing apparitions by multiple people like that? Well, one thing I'd say is that we can't easily rule out that it's PK, that it's any different from D.D. Hume's materialized hands that were observed by a number of people. And the materialized hands weren't observed by everyone. Uh, and there are plenty of physical objects that can only be observed from certain positions in space, like mirror images and uh, electromagnetic fields, which are occasionally visible to some people, but not at everybody in the vicinity. So... In my book, uh, The Limits of Influence, I go into gory detail about the various 
major theories of apparitions and argue that uh, telepathic uh, hypothesis accounts only for some cases that the hardest cases to deal with are precisely the collective apparitions and that it may be most plausible to regard them as psychokinetic productions. Right. But I'm not wedded to that. Because mediums of the past, I know Mirabelli was a famous medium who is said to be able to produce, you know, full bodied materializations of people in the seance room. Correct. Not only were they full figure materializations, attending physicians could study the bodies, hear lungs breathing, stomachs growling, and so on and so on. Uh, And then the figures would dissolve maybe from the ground up or melt into the floor or dissolve in the grasp of somebody who tries to hold on to it. Right. And And these were observed in bright daylight or good electric light. Indeed. And so let's talk about a living agent side versus actual deceased communication. One problem I think philosophers have with um, deceased minds, I guess, speaking through mediums is that they don't understand how, if you're in a deceased state, how you could perceive the world. Like I see the table, but I need sense organs to see the table. I need light to hit my eyeballs, my brain to process the image and, you know, show me uh, an image in front of me. But if I was outside of the body as a spirit, how would I possibly see something? Well, my solution is, I'm sure you know, is to say that it's probably clairvoyance on somebody's part. But if you're willing to explain it in terms of clairvoyance, because we, and the reason for doing that is that, as I said earlier, uh, good ESP subjects can identify targets in sealed opaque envelopes, and there's no position in space from which that can ordinarily be observed. So um, clairvoyance seems to be able to do what ordinary emanative types of perception cannot do. So once we've opened the door to letting clairvoyance do some explanatory heavy lifting for us, that just makes it even more plausible to explain this in terms of living agent psi. That actually weakens the uh, survivalist attempt to argue for survival psi rather than living agent psi. Right. And um, my thing is that I've always thought we don't need to know the how to have evidence that it happens, just like we don't know how PK works, but we have pretty good evidence that it happens. So if there was, like you said, an ideal case of mediumistic communications from a deceased person, uh, we could posit that survival is, is the best explanation without knowing how it's possible, right? There are lots of things we recognize as real, even though we don't know how to explain them. I'm not sure we know how to explain hair loss. <laughs> um, but the existence of so-called idiot savants or savants or prodigies, I mean, they're all, we don't understand how um, savants who are able to factor any number you can give to them but can't add the change in their pocket, how they manage to have such remarkable abilities in the face of such apparently relevant deficits. Right. So even if we don't know how they can see, it's possible that in the deceased state, you can see, we just have no conceivable idea of, of how you would perceive in the, in the disembodied state. We don't know how to explain memory. 
That's right. They There's did no the, doubt that people remember. Yeah, they did the study with the rat where they tried to locate memory in the brain, right? Yeah, lastly. Um, Lashley taught a rat to run a maze, and then he started excising portions of the rat's brain where he thought the memory was located. And so he cut out a little bit of the rat's brain, and the rat could still run the maze, though with a little less panache. And then I cut out more of the rat's brain, and the rat could still run the maze. And finally, the only point at which the rat could no longer run the maze was the point at which the rat could no longer do anything. Now, Lashley didn't make this mistake, but Carl Prebram looked at this later, years later, said, ah, that shows that memories are located uh, diffusely as information, much in the way that information in a hologram is diffusely located. It never occurred to him that he was just exhibiting a mechanistic prejudice. It could equally be taken to show that memories were never located in the brain in the first place, and that it was a mistake to regard memories as things of a certain sort. I argue for this in great detail in my book, Crimes of Reason. So let me put in a sleazy plug for that. Okay. And just uh, we're at the end here. So in your opinion, as far as the evidence for mediumship goes, do you think, um, do you believe in the survivalists? Are you a survivalist or do you think it's a uh, living agent side that the mediums are just psychically gathering information and creating false personas around it? Or uh, I guess impersonations of deceased people when they are, when deceased people are said to communicate through them. I would say I'm sympathetic to the survivalists, but how convinced I am varies from day to day. Okay. Okay. And your book, Dangerous Pursuits, you can buy that on Amazon, Books, Barnes and Noble. Yes. And do uh, you have anything else to say be before we uh, go here? Well, I appreciate your having understood uh, Dangerous Pursuits. You asked some very good questions. So thank you. Oh, yeah. Thank you very much for agreeing to do this interview. I hope to get uh, more interviews with authors like yourself and get the word out about the paranormal and hopefully teach others about these subjects that uh, most people don't really know that much about. Well, thank you. And I wish you the best. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye.